The following presentation has been prepared by the Video Tax News team for Canadian tax and financial professionals. Program recorded June 20th, 2019. Enjoy! Welcome to the July edition of Life in the Tax Line. Ah, July, summertime, the beautiful rain clouds, the oh. rain puddles, ain't it great? <laughs> a little bit of lightning bolts, you know. Well, yeah, we, Why still, not? we gotta wear t-shirts like this. Mm. This is wonderful. Isn't this fun? Don't you think these are the coolest shirts ever? And Caitlin, I gotta mention here, so we've got our tax update session coming up and we're so excited that we're giving away t-shirts to people who register by a certain date. When, I don't even know when it is. But do it's it July. But anyways, if you want to be cool like us, you know what you need to do. No one's going to register now. Whatever. Cool like us. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Um, anyways, we're going to talk a little bit about tax today. So where do we start? Excellent. Caitlin? Let's talk about Bitcoin. Mm -hmm. So one question that has come up in the past is, if I'm buying a Bitcoin or a digital currency or a virtual currency, do I have to pay GST on that purchase? Is it a, or HST, is that a taxable supply? Well, the Department of Finance, in some proposed legislation that has just recently been released, provided clarity to this effect. They have stated in this draft legislation that these virtual currencies are now going to be considered a financial instrument such that they are an exempt supply and would not attract GST, HST. So a little bit of clarity there. Now we move on to disability tax. It's always yes. good to get clarifications. Yes. Uh, here we've got something that took a while to get clarified. We had legislation <laughs> passed back in 2014 due to concerns about uh, advisory services assisting disabled individuals in applying for the disability tax credit. A lot of them were charging contingency fees, some of them up to 40% mm -hmm. by all reports of the taxes saved. Well, Parliament didn't like that. We'd like mm -hmm. to see more of that money go to the disabled. Okay, how are we going to do that? Well, we will set a fee cap legislatively, and how much will it be? We'll let someone else figure that out. <laughs> so CRA is the someone else who got the thrill of figuring that out. They've done a lot of consultation. Obviously, it's taken them five years to reach a conclusion. They've had a lot of discussions, as I understand it, with the Disability Advisory Committee, and mm -hmm. this does match what they recommended. And they said, okay, here's the deal. You're filling out the non-medical part, of the application, you can charge an absolute maximum of $100. You're making a claim on a tax return, you can have another $100 for that for each year of the tax return. So I kind of look at that, Joe, and go, some of my clients, this has been pretty easy. They yeah. have enough income to soak up the whole credit. They don't have a lot of other expenditures that might prevent them from claiming it. Uh, their situation's fairly obvious. We fill in the data, say, take that to your doctor, bring it back, we send it into CRA. Bang, 200 bucks is probably highway robbery for what we have to do for those ones. But a lot of them are more complicated. You know, we've seen examples in the courts, a recent case on a mental impairment. Does this person qualify? What's the impact of their situation? Well, this individual had social anxiety, depression, phobias. They were able to manage their life in their apartment. Yeah. But once they got out of the apartment, Wow, they couldn't have social interactions. They can't carry out day-to-day -day transactions. They relied a lot on family members. So the court said, yeah, yeah, this definitely qualifies. Now, my costs of going to court are pretty clearly not part of that fee cap, but the costs of just sitting down and gaining the understanding to know that it's even a possibility to apply, sure. that is part. Yeah. And for some of our clients, they have other expenses like nursing home fees. They got to choose what they're going to claim. Others are so disabled that they don't benefit from the credit. They don't mm -hmm. have enough income. 
it can be transferred. Okay, who should it get transferred to? Now we got a lot more work to do to get those benefits. Potential so complexity. I think it's challenging. A one size fits all fee cap may not be the answer, and I know that. The CRA is still taking yep. consultation information on this mm -hmm. and taking it under advisement. Mm -hmm. So we'll see how that develops. Yeah. So moving on to the next topic here, interest deductibility with a seized business or a lost investment. So the concept is this. You borrow $100,000, you're paying interest in it, you use that 100000 to invest in something. Well, what if things go bad and you no longer are earning money off that thing? It disappears, it goes bankrupt, whatever. Well, the thing is, you still are going to be paying those interest amounts into the future when that source of income is gone, yes, you can actually still deduct it going on into the future. Now, if it's 15 years from now and that debt is still owing, CRA could come back and say, no, it's not deductible. Show me how it was tied to that original business. And that could be more difficult 15 years ago. So you're going to have to keep records tying the specific mm -hmm. loan to those business or investments. But it is a possibility to think about. Katie, well, Joe, that know? whole 15-year issue, sure. that doesn't change. Mm -hmm. I may still have the investment, but I got to demonstrate 15 years ago, here's what I borrowed, yeah. here's how it got into the investment, and now I got to trace the line through 15 years to show that the debt <laughs> hasn't changed and the investment hasn't changed. Now, the other thing we got to consider, I see this a lot, Joe, for people who make a mistake in the stock market. Mm -hmm. I borrowed 100, I lost half of it, I sold out for 50, stopped the hemorrhaging. Well, 50,000 of the debt still generating deductible interest, the other 50, I should be repaying. Yep. If I don't, then only half the interest is going to be deductible mm -hmm. going forward. That's mm -hmm. right. Let's move on to the next topic here, unnamed person's request. Yeah, yeah, another example where CRA is using third parties to gather information to help them do their job to determine whether people are properly complying with their uh, responsibilities under the Income Tax Act. So what are they doing? They actually went to a roofing and siding supply company well within CRA's focus of the construction industry, and they asked this company to provide CRA with information with respect to their customers, mm -hmm. customers being contractors in the residential and commercial construction sphere. The court granted this judicial authorization, so CRA is presumably going to be getting this information. Now, what I found interesting about this particular request right here, it wasn't limited to just the customer's name, business number, transaction details, purchase details, but they also requested that all bank account information mm -hmm. from the from the customers that uh, the taxpayer may have had on hand, maybe on a credit application, would also be provided to the CRA. You know, this is a very interesting aspect because there's a lot of things that can be done with banking information for a taxpayer. Mm -hmm. um, you can actually request information from the bank to see exactly what their yeah. ins and outs there, maybe do a deposit analysis, net worth analysis. Uh, also, if you determine there is a liability, now you have a bank account you can go yeah. to to garnish or grab some of those funds. Uh, uh, so it's very interesting that they're making these connections mm -hmm. as well. Yep. Well, we know they're looking at the supply side, the construction side. Mm -hmm. What about the purchaser side? Sure. We saw a case fairly recently that's one example of many CRA reviews of the new housing rebate. Mm -hmm. I buy a new mm -hmm. home, I get a chunk of the GST back, assuming I meet relevant criteria. Well, one of those, this has to be intended for my primary place of residence, place where I spend most of my time. And here we had a case where CRA said, come on. You've already got two residences you own. This is your third. You didn't change your mailing address over. Your utility bills are really tiny. You're not living there full time. This isn't your primary place of residency. Well, 
He went off to court, and uh, this is a great example of having to find all the relevant facts. They said, well, no, I didn't change my mailing address, and I don't have a lot of utility costs, both for the same reason. I travel a lot in my work, so I'm not always at home to use the utilities, and I get my mail sent to someone else who can contact me if anything urgent shows mm -hmm. up in the mail. Okay, that sounds reasonable. How come you need two other places then? Well, I don't live in those. My ex lives in one, and my kid lives in the other, and I'm not living with either one of them. I need a place for me. Okay, fair enough. Well, he got his claim. It's unfortunate yeah. he had to go to court, but mm -hmm. he did get the claim. Now, hopefully, you could show that court case to a CRA agent and say, look, here's my facts, right. and get a similar mm -hmm. result without having to uh, make it all the way to the courts. Ugh. Blame it on the kids. There you go. Solution number one. <laughs> Let's move on to the next topic here. Uh, there were a number of, uh, there was a release from CRA citing their uh, standards for service delivery. Very interesting. And this is something that we could definitely use in our conversation with clients as well. Uh, just a couple stats I'll throw out there. Uh, requests for um, uh, clearance certificates. Uh, somebody passes away, you need a clearance certificate to ensure that all tax liabilities are taken care of. So as the executor or the trustee, you can get those assets out to different people here. And uh, how long is it going to take to get those done? Well, uh, 180 days is the standard that they're supposed to meet or, or that they're trying to meet. Uh, that is met, 80, oh, pardon me, 120 days, so four months, and that is met about 80% of the time, so just be aware of that. Mm -hmm. One of the other stats that I find interesting here is uh, taxpayer relief. So you got extra interest or penalties assessed and you want to get it waived. How long? Uh, half a year, 180 days, resolved 85% of the time. And sometimes you might file a service complaint. How long, how fast does that be resolved? 30 days, 80% of the time. So mm -hmm. some very interesting stats. They're so definitely... I find those useful to just pop online sure. for anything mm -hmm. I'm doing and go, okay, what's a reasonable expectation yeah. of how long this should take? And if I sent that clearance request in 120 days ago, Mm -hmm. Maybe it's not time to complain yet. 180 days, it is time to complain. That's all we have time for. Have a great one. The Video Tax News team has been providing Canadian professionals with practical tax information for over 30 years. Subscribe to one of our tax newsletters or join us as we present live and online seminars relating to both personal and corporate tax. For more details, visit www.videotax.com. That's V-I-D-E-O-T-A-X.com. The preceding information is for general, informational purposes only and deals with dynamic, time-sensitive and complex matters that may not apply to particular facts and circumstances. Information provided should not be relied upon as a substitute for specialized professional advice in connection with any particular matter. For more details, see videotax.com slash disclaimer. Copyright Video Tax News Inc. 2019. All rights reserved.